2: I'm Emily Tampkin, Senior Editor, US. And I'm Katie Stallard, Senior Editor, China and Global Affairs. It's Wednesday, the 20th of April. You're listening to World Review from the New Statesman, a twice weekly international news podcast. Every Monday, we interview a guest for their unique perspective and expertise. Then, later in the week, we come together to unpack some of the most significant stories in world affairs.
3: This week, Shanghai is preparing to ease its weeks-long lockdown after strict rules brought the city to breaking point. (laughs) But what toll did it take on the city, and what are the consequences for China more broadly?
2: Meanwhile, communal violence is once again shaking India, We discuss why and what might happen next. Then we take a listener question on the role of diplomacy in the Russian war in Ukraine. Thank you for joining us. Let's begin. All right. Happy Taurus season. We are both joining you from the greater Washington, D.C. area and are ready to get into it, into the events of this past week. Katie, to start us off, could you... Maybe give us the latest on, uh, you know, you you mentioned Shanghai and the the harsh lockdown there at the top. For those who have not been following the story as closely as you have, could you bring us up to speed on what's happening there and what is happening now?
3: Yeah, so this really started for most people in Shanghai at at the start of April. There have been softer and and effectively rolling lockdowns um, occurring in the city through much of March as more COVID cases have been detected there. But starting at the end of March and then citywide across 26 million people from the start of April, people in that city have been effectively confined to their apartments. They are only allowed to leave for essential grocery shopping, although that that has been very difficult, as I'm I'm sure we'll discuss, as shops have have run out of food and delivery services have, have really broken down there, or to attend COVID testing. What China does, the the approach that that it calls zero COVID or dynamic clearing, which is very unlike the systems that we've seen here in the United States, is that when there's even a single case, in the first case in a neighborhood, as they spread across an entire city, as we've now seen in Shanghai, the authorities lock everybody down. They test again and again, Everybody who tests positive, regardless of whether they're symptomatic or not, has to go to a, a quarantine and isolation facility. And the idea is that by locking everyone down and continually testing, you identify all of the positive cases across the community or the city. You contain them in these quarantine and isolation units and then you, and you stop the spread. But the problem for Shanghai has been would they have now had several weeks of this lockdown and continual testing. But yet there are still new cases in the community. So we're really seeing now the limits of this zero COVID approach when it's up against this, this very highly transmissible Omicron variant. And that's led to to real difficulties for people in that city over the last three weeks.
2: Could you just, I, I don't mean to you know, suggest, let's spend more time on what's really horrible, but could you... Um, Speak a bit more about what some of those difficulties have been.
3: Yeah, this has been really dreadful for a very large number of people. Shanghai is a huge city. It's a population of more than 25 million. And it's really China's most important economic hub. And what's happened there is you were told with very little warning. Initially, people were told that this would be a temporary pause. So they should be prepared to spend around four days in lockdown. This was at the start of April. So you imagine you hear on the 1st of April that you're going into a temporary lockdown should only last a few days. They're going to test, identify the cases, and then life will continue as normal. So people had very little time to stock up food, and they were discouraged from panic buying and from laying in huge quantities of food beforehand. But as the lockdown has continued, people have been running out of food. There have been really distressing scenes posted to social media of people screaming from the windows, we're, we're, we don't have enough food, we're hungry. People posting pretty desperate messages to say they're down to their last few vegetables. They've no idea where they're going to get more. So there has been a a real hunger problem in the city, which to be fair, has been eased by communities getting together and placing bulk orders and, and trying to get supplies for entire communities amongst themselves. And the local authorities have started to deliver Effectively, rations to people, so bags with in some cases pretty small quantities of, of staple goods and a few fresh vegetables. but it, there has there has been a real hunger problem. There have been massive health problems because people who would ordinarily be able to seek treatment in hospitals have been either confined to to their apartments and to their communities or turned away from hospitals. And there have been cases of, of people who have died because they have been unable to get urgent medical care. There have also been large numbers of children separated from their parents. Um, until very recently, the policy was that if your child tested positive for COVID, they, even if they were an infant, they were taken away from you and into these quarantine hospitals. You can only imagine the distress for both children and parents that your your child is being taken away and and isolated in an institution with, with no explanation of what's happening to them. And, and from the pictures that have emerged from these institutions, pretty basic facilities and very overstretched staff trying to take care of, of large numbers of young children. And that policy has been eased, but only so that if your child t- tests positive and you test positive too, you can accompany them into the isolation centre. Or if you can make the case that your child has special needs, then even if you yourself test negative, you can still apply for permission to accompany them into these quarantine centers. But that has led to, to huge anxiety among parents who are now trading tips about how to make sure if your child tests positive that you do too so that you won't be separated. This has been really, really distressing for people and, and not to mention the fact that many people who are, who are working temporary or day-to-day type jobs just have been unable to work and so have been deprived of any sort of income for the last several weeks. And so it's been a really serious um, issue and people have been really dealing with really difficult circumstances there.
2: Truly, yes, I I can only imagine, and I think many of us listening to this either in the U.S. or somewhere else in North America or in Europe can also only imagine because our experiences were so so different from that. So if you're not in Shanghai, but you're elsewhere in China and you're watching this, you must be worried that I, I would imagine that there's great concern that this will now come to their cities, to their homes, that this will upend their lives in, in a similar way.
3: Yeah, the, the real problem here is that there is no clear exit route out of this for China. The, the top leadership, Xi Jinping, has said just last week he's talked about the importance of sticking to this zero COVID policy. He, his line was persistence is victory. And that's really a clear directive to all officials in the system. This is the path. It is personally associated now with Xi Jinping, who is by far China's most important and most powerful leader. So this is the course um, that he has set for China. But the, the problem is, as long as that's the case, as long as China can't tolerate cases just spreading within the community, then this is the only option. Is these mass lockdowns, which can be triggered. There's a city in the northeast of China right now that is a smaller city, two million people. It's small by the size of standards of Chinese cities, although, although not by elsewhere, which has gone into lockdown because a single case has been detected. So as long as that is the official policy from on high, local officials will enforce it. And that means you just never know whether you're on the verge of another sudden lockdown. And there is this real incentive to to local officials now not to end up like Shanghai. So they don't want to get in trouble themselves. So it really the incentive is, if in any doubt, lock down, make sure that your city does not become a, a hotspot for for COVID transmission. But the problem is that then renders tens and hundreds of millions of people uh, subject to these sudden no-notice lockdowns. And we've talked about the kind of human catastrophe of all of this but there's also then a very real economic side to this with factories are, are having to are having to shudder at, at, at very little notice we're, we're now seeing factories go back to operate in, in Shanghai but with workers in what they're calling a closed loop which essentially means you're, you issued a sleeping bag a mattress and you stay in the factory because that's the only way you can ensure that the workforce is isolated and is able to continue production so there, there is going to be an economic side to this beyond the immediate human toll that it is taking. But there's really, there's no clear exit out of China because, and to be fair to the authorities, because they did do a very good job over the last two years in containing the spread. There's very little natural immunity among the population. It's not like here where where most of us know many people who've had COVID. There has been very little community spread. China's vaccines are not effective at preventing the transmission of Omicron. They are effective against pre- protecting; they, they give you protection against serious illness, but they don't stop the spread. So, as long as the Omicron variant is present in China, as long as they're not, there are not effective vaccines, and as long as the community is so vulnerable, and without you know, much of the community in China just doesn't have access to, to good health infrastructure, so the concern is if they move away from this policy and they open up and they move to the model that, that, that more of us are in now of living effectively with COVID, there will be a massive health catastrophe in China. But if they don't, then people are stuck on the continual precipice of these lockdowns and with this ongoing economic uncertainty, too.
2: I have one last question for you on this, which is to try to tease out these two, tease out some of the, the how to put this, which is try to, t- to tease out the public health concerns of which you were just speaking from the political motivation. How much of it do you think is genuinely motivated by, as we say, you know, the the calls here for trust the science and do it, do the take the appropriate public health measures? And how much of it is that Chinese authorities really celebrated their policies toward COVID and took it as a sign that China was strong and the West was weak and look at how well we've handled this and how poorly you've handled this. And it is it's just underscores she's big year. And so we can't change course now.
3: Yeah, I I think that's a really important point you make about this being this important year. Uh, For listeners who who have not been following it, this is the the year of the 20th Party Congress. It's expected to to happen in the autumn when if by convention or by recent convention, Xi Jinping would step down and would hand over to a successor, it seems almost certain that he's not gonna do that, that he's gonna take a, a third term in power this autumn. So ahead of that Congress, it's really important to him that the domestic situation is stable. He, you know, he, he just doesn't want and therefore local officials can't afford a huge catastrophe and a, and a, and a health crisis right before this really important political moment for, for him. So every incentive is around keeping the situation controlled and both he has personally tied himself to it. He's been portrayed as the commander-in-chief of the People's War against the the coronavirus. He's been really depicted as the, the architect of this zero COVID approach. So it's important to him personally and politically that this is seen to be a success. But it's also, I think the Communist Party just has a genuine fear that if they do ease off, and if there is a, a you know, a, a real big public health disaster in China, That could create massive instability, and it really undermines the Communist Party's central claim to power, which is this is why you need an organization like like the CCP to run the country. This is why our political system is superior. And this is the trade-off to some of the freedoms that, that China doesn't have, are that you have this very effective management system. So allowing that to break down would really undermine the party's legitimacy at the worst possible time. So all the incentives are, are are aligned to mean that they really seem to be determined to double down and press ahead with this zero COVID strategy. But in the world of Omicron, this will not be the last mass lockdown that, that we will see. And unfortunately, this will not be the last time that people are denied urgent medical care or going hungry because they've suddenly been confined to
2: their homes. Katie has been following and covering the story. You should read her on it. But right now, we are going to turn to another government that perhaps should change course, but has not made any indication of doing so, which is Modi's government in India. So, this past weekend, basically, what we have seen in recent weeks is I, at the top of this podcast, I said communal violence, and authorities have said, oh, it's Hindus and Muslims attacking each other. But basically, what we have seen in the past several weeks is when there is a Hindu festival, um, mostly Muslims have been attacked by by people celebrating these festivals or by taking these festivals as an opportunity to attack Muslims. This has been this past weekend. It was in Delhi. We saw it in Delhi, but not only in Delhi. It was also in Andhra Pradesh and Karnataka. And in the past several weeks, you've also seen it in Gujarat and West Bengal and in Madhya Pradesh. So uh, this is not new, but there is an element of it that is new Modi's ruling party, the the BJP has long flirted with slash encouraged has at various points gone from just ignoring and not punishing to encouraging this Hindu sometimes violent Hindu nationalism. but what we're seeing is just increasing vigilanteism spurred on at these moments of at these mo- moments of what should be celebrations and You're not seeing the state come in and stop it. Now, some would say that's completely unsurprising, given the fact that there was this anti-Muslim violence in Gujarat that when Modi was chief minister there and that he hasn't really done much to curb Hindu nationalism and in fact, in many cases, has encouraged it since coming to power as prime minister. I don't know at this point how you unring this bell, because I was speaking to somebody about this yesterday. It's one thing for the party to ignore it. It's one thing for the party to encourage it. But it's people who are carrying out these acts and people who continue to vote for the BJP for all of their other failings, because to some extent, this resonates with them. This India is a, is a massive country. It's a multi-ethnic country. It's a multi-religious country. And that it's not new that it's being threatened, but this the sort of violence that we've seen in the past few weeks the sustained violence against Muslims, I think, is noteworthy. Also noteworthy is that we spoke at the beginning of this year about the elections, the state elections that are going on in India. And it's worth noting that thus far, the BJP has been very successful in those in those elections. I, I, I think There are some moments where it looks like perhaps they've been beaten back a bit. You had the farmers protests where the farmers won. They were able to fight back against this legislation that they felt would have economically disadvantaged them. You had elections last year in West Bengal where the BJP invested great resources and and still lost. But by and large, you've seen sustained successes from this ruling party, which means you will probably continue to see violence on the ground level which is scary for it's terrifying for the muslim citizens of india
3: and you you've covered this in, in such detail over over so many years what strikes you as as really being new and perhaps most significant for us to understand about what about the current situation and, and where this could be heading now
2: i think what really jumped out at me about this round and i'm not saying that this is wholly new or that it's never happened before but the association of hindu festivals with violence i think is a very is is a scary development because to be India is meant to be a secular country. That was that's an idea baked into its origins. If it is going to, if if you want to say we want to have more Hinduism flourish and, and and be able to embrace it, that's one thing. But if that if we are setting up a situation where that can't be done without anti-Muslim violence, it cannot continue to exist as a pluralistic state. I think the other thing is just how across how many states this has happened. So. In, 20, in early 2020, when Trump visited Modi, you had violence in Northeast Delhi that is in a predominantly Muslim area of the city, which was horrible. There were people just so horribly attacked. But this is across several states. And so just the scope of what we're seeing now, I think, is also quite concerning. It's something that we will continue to follow. One could speak for many minutes about this, and this was a brief discussion, but I did want to make sure that we noted it on this podcast because it's an important development that, unfortunately, I don't think that we will see reversed anytime soon. <laughs>
0: Wherever you are in the world,
2: if you're interested in global affairs, you can subscribe to The New Statesman in digital, in print, or both from as little as one pound a week. That's 12 weeks for just 12 pounds. That's one euro a week in Europe and just $2 a week in America. Just go to www.newstatesman.com slash podcast offer.
0: From The New Statesman comes a new podcast. Audio long reads. The best of our reported features and essays, read aloud. Songs are
2: like tattoos, Mitchell said on Blue. Having one written about you is immortality in fiction rolled into one.
0: Featuring writing from our authors, including Kate Mossman on Joni Mitchell's former muse and lover, Jeremy Cliff on his journey through France before this year's presidential election, and Sophie McBain on the
2: refugee crisis.
3: Don't die, he kept shouting. He didn't answer when Marwa screamed back, Who is dying?
0: Ease into the weekend with our Audio Long Reads, published every Saturday morning. Just search Audio Long Reads wherever you get your podcasts.
2: And on that grim note, we are going to turn to a section that we like to call You Ask Us. So our question this week comes to us via email from Jeffrey in my favorite city in North America, Toronto. Go Raptors. Okay. Jeffrey writes, I've only recently discovered your podcasts and have been appreciating your analyses of various situations. Here's a subject I'd like to hear more about, should it be of interest to your people. It is, wither diplomacy. Wars generally don't end without diplomacy brought into play. The Ukrainian president has occasionally made noises about it and seems to have made some efforts to have peace talks with Russia, but these seem not to have been encouraged by NATO or other influential political forces. This puzzles and disturbs me as though a bad peace is obviously not great, at least it can stop the destruction and allow for some, assuagement of the ongoing human misery. Jeffrey then writes about Rex Tillerson, the former Secretary of State, eviscerating the State Department and has that been built back up. Anyway, Jeffrey writes, nobody else is talking about it either and the absence screams and I don't know what it means. It's a strange vacuum and incredibly dangerous for so many reasons. I have many thoughts on this, but Katie, I will let you go first.
3: Yeah, I mean, I thank you for the thank you for the question, Jeffrey, and it's great to hear from you. I think it is important to be talking about the diplomatic aspects of this and any possible diplomatic solutions. I think The approach that we've seen, and Emily, you'll be able to talk more about this, but from the Biden administration and and from European leaders is really leaving space for the Ukrainian leadership to decide what it will and won't accept. I think what would probably be unhelpful is if at this point there was a, a, a chorus of voices from the West kind of directing Vladimir Zelensky about you know what he should accept, uh, what should be the terms uh, of any peace. I think it's it's clear that is for the Ukrainians themselves to decide, and certainly you know that the terms that they have been offered thus far, which would essentially involve going to dismember the country, give up a very important territory that they've been fighting for the last eight years, and to accept conditions, I think it's been described as demilitarization, but which seems to amount to accepting a a cap on Ukraine's armed forces. I think as long as it's clear that you still have the threat from Russia next door and Vladimir Putin's cleanly stated view that Ukraine is not a country, and and I I think you would have absolutely no reason to believe that he would not come back and try to take more at a future time. It's just difficult to see how Ukraine could agree to a peace on those terms. It's also difficult to see whether Russia is really serious about peace talks. The delegation that it has sent, Vladimir Medinsky, who's, who's been leading the negotiations, is a pretty low level official, he, he and Putin share an interest in, in Russia's history, but it, it hasn't really felt like russia is approaching these talks with a view to coming up with a with a serious peace deal soon it has felt more like this the di- diplomatic track is going on the periphery while the real battle is being fought on the ground in ukraine certainly it's essential to keep to keep those talks open and it is likely i think that eventually the, the the sides may get closer together and there may be the prospect of some sort of at least a negotiated ceasefire but I think right now that the biggest variable is just Vladimir Putin does not seem to be done with his ambitions for Ukraine. I think he's he's launching a new offensive in the East and it is not clear at all that he intends to stop there. So I think as long as you have Vladimir Putin intent on dismembering Ukraine and Ukraine intent on putting up a fight, you know it, it's difficult to see them coming together right now. And the longer this goes on, the more lives that are lost, the more atrocities that take place in Ukraine harder that's going to be. So I would say it's an important question to be asked and we should continue to ask it and to everything that, that can be done should be done to support negotiations and a diplomatic solution. But I think, unfortunately, there is a long way to go here before we're realistically at that point.
2: I'd like to back up just a bit and, and stress that there are ongoing talks between the Ukrainian side and the Russian side. So there is ongoing diplomacy. Now, the extent to which that is being conducted in good faith on the Russian side, I think, is an open question. The reality is that if Russia wanted to end this war, they could do that today. If Ukraine wanted to end this war, they could not do that today. This war will end when the Russian side decides to operate in good faith, either in negotiations or decides that they have lost too much already. I agree that diplomacy is important. It should be ongoing. We should have leaders continuing to talk to Putin. The negotiations could continue. But this idea that and I'm not Jeffrey did not write this and I Jeffrey I, I don't mean to say that you were suggesting this but there's this idea that we see on some in the left here who say NATO will fight to the last Ukrainian and it's kind of like what are you talking about what <laughs> what who if if Ukraine agreed tomorrow to to carve up its country and to demilitarize first of all Ukraine's not going to agree to demilitarize after it's just been invaded that is not a suggestion that's not a serious suggestion for the Russia side to make after invading the country second of all they, they they are increasing forces in the east. So this idea that they're ready to, to come to some negotiated nobody really gets what they want at the end, which I agree when this does end, nobody's going to get fully what they want because that's not how any of this has ever worked. But this, you know, if Russia wanted to wind down the war, they would not be bolstering themselves in the east of a country that is not theirs. Really quickly, to take your point about the State Department, yes. Rex Tillerson did eviscerate the State Department and his successor, Mike Pompeo, despite all of this talk about swagger, et cetera, I, I do not think showed great respect for the diplomatic process or for more. just as importantly, the diplomats who make up the State Department. Having said that, Antony Blinken is not Tillerson or Pompeo. He himself does come from the world of diplomacy. That doesn't mean that there aren't frustrations now. There were reports last summer of, of diplomat of low morale in the State Department, which prompted Bl- Blinken to say that. Heather back. There are frustrations at times. I'm sure about who is leading what so on at what point is national security advisor Jake Sullivan more empowered at what at what points is are the people the point people on any given issue in the State Department more empowered? All of that is true and ongoing, but the Biden State Department is not the Trump State Department. for all of its for all of the ills of this administration, I don't think we've seen this the, we, we have not seen the same kind of disregard, disrespect, and active efforts to undermine. The State Department and the Trump administration, as we did in the Biden administration, which is not to say that there aren't problems with the State Department under Biden, which is not to say that it shouldn't be more respected. But I I do think that it's important to say that it has not just been a continuum since the Tillerson days.
3: And I think we have we have seen really concerted efforts to work together with European allies. I think it's just at, at the moment it feels to me like the diplomatic focus is on enabling Ukraine's ability to defend itself and trying to maintain somewhat of a united front towards sanctions. I, I think that's the immediate objective. No, and, and giving
2: it. Ukraine space, sorry, and by doing that, giving Ukraine space to continue carrying out diplomacy for itself as right. an independent country.
3: Yeah, exactly. On on its own terms, because I think, and to be fair to Zelensky, I think he has raised some options. Publicly said Ukraine would consider neutrality. He's effectively put NATO membership on on the table as, you know, that that's something that Ukraine would be prepared to walk away from. And he's offered to put the, I, I think it's they've offered to suspend the negotiations on the status of Crimea for ten years, to effectively to to de facto acknowledge that they they are they are ceding Crimea in in the short term without doing so on on a permanent or a legal basis. So I think you you have periodically seen the Ukraine side offer indications of, of avenues that they're prepared to seriously talk about. But I don't think we are yet seeing signs that the Russians are, are seriously interested in, in taking them up
2: on that. Thank you, Jeffrey, for your question. And thanks to all of you who sent in your questions. Listeners, you can send yours in at podcasts at newstatesman.co.uk or by tweeting at us.
3: That's all the time we have for today. Be sure to tune in to France Elects, Edo's pop-up podcast on the French election. And join us next week for an interview with Yasha Monk.
2: If you've enjoyed this episode of World Review, please like, subscribe, rate us, leave a review, and tell your friends. And really, do tune in to France Elects. That election is coming up this weekend. I know we didn't talk about it on this episode, but that's because we have France Alex, which we encourage you to listen to. Our producer has been Adrian Bradley. Thank you for listening, and until next time.